Um, I wanted to mention that. Now, next Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday. I guess there's a game still being played. Um, I know the Chiefs fans are excited, and the Niners fans are excited, and the Swifties are excited, but the, the Bills fans are not as excited. But there's still a game happening, and we're looking forward to that. So we're going to do something fun uh, as a church next Sunday. We're inviting all of you or encouraging all of you uh, to represent your favorite team next Sunday when you come to church, all right? It doesn't have to be football. If you're not a football fan, then wear a soccer jersey or a baseball jersey. The only rule is no Red Sox jerseys. No Red Sox jerseys allowed. Um, no, just kidding. The only rule is you can't, you can't, you can't trash talk each other, right? We, we, we can't have the ushers breaking up fights in the lobby next week because of the jersey or the shirt that you're wearing. So next Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday, wear your favorite team's gear, and we'll have a lot of fun together. You know, I'm a big sports fan, really big sports fan, and one of the things that is fun about sports is, is the banter between the fan bases, the, the, the trash talk that goes back and forth as, um, as we kind of just take advantage of the opportunity to gloat uh, over a victory uh, or to rub it in when uh, someone else's team loses. And uh, we're, in, we're in the book of Habakkuk, and this passage this morning could almost be categorized as, as God trash-talking evil people. Now, there's a much more... Um, theological term. It's called an oracle of woe. That's boring, right? Oracle of woe. Let's call it what it is. It's, it's trash talk. Uh, God is basically saying to the wicked people, you think you're something, but you're nothing. You think you're getting away with it, but you won't. And just as a quick recap, Habakkuk was a prophet who lived in Judah at a time where Judah had really lost its way. And Habakkuk um, calls out to God at the beginning of this book and says, God, there's wicked leaders in Judah, and they're ignoring your word and your law, and you're not doing anything. And then God replies and says, oh, I see it all, and I'm going to do something. And my plan is I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, the wicked heathens, and they're going to come and judge you and punish you and drag you off to exile. To which Habakkuk goes, that's not what I was hoping to hear. That's not the plan that I am down, it's not a plan that I'm down with. And then last week, Pastor Jeremiah did a great job unpacking the next reply of God to Habakkuk, was, which was basically, hey, trust me. It may take a while for certain promises of God to come to pass, but you can trust me and you can be patient with me. And as we move into this part in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 20, uh, what we have is five oracles of woe, five oracles of woe. And basically what God does is he addresses five different types of people who are wicked, evil, and sinful. He, he talks to plunderers, who are people who take advantage and victimize other people. He talks to people who think they are secure because of their homes and their wealth. He talks to people who are proud of their civilization and all that they've accomplished through human means and that they're going to be destroyed. He, he talks to people who, who think that their glory is enough, but it's ultimately going to turn into shame. And he talks to people who worship worthless idols. This is all symbolic of kind of Babylon. And so Babylon, the world power of the day, becomes Babylon, the object lesson. But when we consider this passage, we have to be careful to know this, that this is not just a Babylon issue. This is a us issue, too. Because one of the commentators said that given our human condition, which according to Scripture is that uh, our hearts are against God unless we are changed by God, Given our human condition, nations and empires eventually become a version of Babylon and end up affected by the same things. And if you don't think America doesn't have aspects of Babylon to it, 
you're not paying attention, right? So this is an issue for all of us, but this can also be an issue for the church because there's an ambiguity in this passage that's actually very uncomfortable. And some commentators say, you can't always tell if God's talking about Babylon or if at times he's actually talking about Judah. And so there are issues within our own hearts and our own lives that we have to deal with. And so this morning, we're going to learn two very important things about sin, and we're going to learn one incredible thing about God, all right? Two important things about sin and one incredible thing about God. The first thing we're going to learn about sin is this, that's what sin offers, it can't provide. What sin offers, it cannot provide. Let's go to the text, verse 9. Here's, the, here's one of the oracles. It says, what sorrow awaits you who build big houses with money gained dishonestly? You believe that your wealth will buy security, putting your family's nest beyond the reach of danger. But by the murders you committed, you have shamed your name and forfeited your lives. The very stones in the walls cry out against you, and the beams in the ceilings echo their complaints. He's saying, your big homes are actually going to turn on you. Verse 12, what sorrow awaits you who build cities with money gained through murder and corruption? Has not the Lord of heaven's armies promised that the wealth of nations will turn to ashes? They work so hard, but all in vain. What sin offers, it cannot provide. You know, we see a few things in this text that help us understand that truth. He talks about big houses. You build big houses. Now, I just want to say, the problem is not big houses. The problem is that they were built with money that was gained dishonestly, right? That's what it says in the passage. And actually, the Hebrew word for houses there doesn't just speak of, like, structures that people live in, but it's actually a word that can be used to talk about the legacy and dynasty of a family. Like in England, they might have talked about the house of Stuart which would have been a, 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 a set of rulers that passed on their leadership from generation to generation. In the same way here, what the prophet is saying is not just have you built physical houses with money gained dishonestly. He's saying some of you have built your family name, your legacy, your dynasty in ways that have victimized other people. And he's saying you think that it's going to offer you security and stability and certainty but all it's going to give you in the end is shame and sorrow. He says, you think these houses put you beyond the reach of danger. You think that sin will offer you a comfortable, easy, danger-free life, but all it provides in the end is a life that has been forfeited and wasted. And then the other thing he says is that you think these, you can buy your security. Sin offers you protection, but it provides you in the end no protection. In fact, the really interesting thing about this passage is the things that they use to protect them begin to accuse them. I'll protect myself by building this beautiful home with these beams and these rocks. And what is the metaphor, the personification that Habakkuk uses? Those stones accuse you. Those beams cry out against you. The very things that you use to build up your home and to protect yourself it cannot provide you with that. Instead, all it provides you with is accusers that you cannot escape because you've placed them where they are with your own sinful hands. Now, this is heavy, right? I mean, this is, this is the truth that what sin offers, it can't provide. And it, and it brings us to one of my favorite, most helpful definitions of the word sin, which is simply this, that sin is uh, trusting in or treasuring anything more than Jesus. Sin's not just breaking rules or doing bad things or doing things that the Bible says you shouldn't do. Sin is trusting in and treasuring anything more than Jesus, which means that sometimes even our good works can be sinful at their root if we're doing them because we trust in and treasure something more than Jesus. 
So if I'm a really good person, I go to church every Sunday because I want other people to think I'm great and I want them to approve of me and I want the respect of my community, then what you, write, what you might really trust in is the feeling of being respected and noticed. And church attendance is useful to get you what your heart finds beautiful. So this definition of sin, what it means is that even people who have been in church a long time have to sit up and pay attention and, and not just repent of the wrong things they do, but repent sometimes of the reasons they even do good things. If it's because they're treasuring in or trusting something more than Jesus, believing the offer. So listen, when we sin, here's what's happening. When we sin, when and why we sin, we are looking to something other than Jesus to give to our hearts what Jesus has already made available. We're not believing what he offers. We're looking somewhere else. But what sin offers, it can't provide. I remember at the start of the pandemic, which believe it or not was just about four years ago now, um, we were uh, stuck in our homes, you know, spending more time than usual on our computers. And I think all the scammers of the world took advantage of us. Anyone else? And all of a sudden, you just, a little extra time on Facebook, and all these ads start popping up, and all these things that seem too good to be true. And my wife loves reminding me of two times that I was the sucker, two times that I bought something that was a scam. The first thing was for her. I was thinking of her. And there were these sandals, and they looked amazing. They looked comfortable. They were great for her, and it was getting warmer weather, and we were taking walks outside because it was the only thing we could do. And I was like, I'm going to get her these sandals. And I bought these sandals, and they came in the mail, and we were all excited, and we opened them up, and they were, I can't even describe them. They were not made for a human foot. It was the most ridiculous thing I had ever seen. It was like a third grader's art project. That's literally what it looked like. And we had a good laugh about it. And then the other thing that I ordered, because, you know, it was a stressful time. And so I was having some issues with my neck and my, my spine. And so I found this thing on, on Facebook that it was like, you, it was supposed to decompress, you know, your spine and your neck. Stretch it out and, and bring some relief. And, and you would hang it on a doorknob. And then you would lay on your back on the ground, and you'd lay the back of your head in this little head hammock, and something about it was supposed to stretch your neck out and make you feel better. And I fell for it. So I bought it, and it came in the mail, and it looked okay, and I set it up, and instead of it dealing with my compression issues, I think it almost concussed me, because when I tried to use it, all that happened was I slammed my head onto the back of the ground really hard as my family watched and laughed. Um, Sometimes what is offered is not what's provided, right? And this is the, the nature of sin, that sin tells lies. It's, it's a, how do you know sin is lying? Because its lips are moving. It's that sort of a deal. Sin is always lying. And I just want to, can I just tell you, here's five, there's so many, but here's five, here's five lies of sin that I think we really are dealing with a lot right now in our world today. The first thing is this, anything that I feel is good for me, anything I feel, any way that I feel is good for me. And yet, the scriptures say to us, your heart is desperately wicked. You don't even know your own heart. How can you trust your own feelings? Now, I'm not saying ignore your feelings. I'm not saying your feelings don't matter. What I'm saying is you don't bow your knees to your feelings. You don't worship your feelings. You don't make important decisions simply based on the fact that I feel something. But this is a lie of sin. If you feel something, then it's good for you. Another lie of sin is this. Anything that makes you feel fill in the blank, it's good for you. So if it makes you feel happy, if it makes you feel satisfied, if it makes you feel free, whatever it is, then it must be good for you. And yet the scriptures say we don't live for our own happiness. We live for God's glory. 
Here's another lie that I think this one sometimes ends up in the church sometimes. Anything that costs me something is bad for me. So if it's inconvenient, if it's costly, if I have to change the way I'm living, if I have to stop doing something and start doing something else, then it's bad for me. And how dare you tell me otherwise? And yet in the scriptures, Jesus says to his followers, take up your cross and follow me daily and die to yourself. It's amazing how surprised we are as Christians that following Jesus costs us something. It cost him everything to bring us in. So why would it cost us nothing to respond to his sacrifice? And yet if we're not careful, this lie of sin, oh, it's super inconvenient for me to serve on a team. I'd rather just show up and just be a part of a service. It's super inconvenient to me to give of my time, talent, and treasure. It's super inconvenient of me to step away from this and to spend more time doing this spiritual discipline. Of course it is. That's discipleship. It's costly. And if your following of Jesus isn't costing you anything, or hasn't cost you something recently, then, you know, we have to ask the Holy Spirit to help us with that. In what way is this costing me something? Here's another lie that we hear sometimes. Anything currently unpopular is untrue. (laughs) So anything that is now unpopular in society and in culture automatically becomes untrue. And the inverse is also a lie. Anything that is currently popular is true. And yet, Jesus said, I am the truth. And he got so unpopular in certain circles that he was killed for being that person. And then the last lie that we believe sometimes is that I can find what I need outside of God. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. I can do this on my own. And yet the scriptures tell us that God says you were created, you were lovingly created by me and you were purposefully created for me, and I have a plan and purpose for your life. And our freedom and our human flourishing is not found in doing things our way, but it's in bringing every desire that we have and doing one of two things, either surrendering it to God or finding its ultimate satisfaction in God. Because the desires we have were given to point us to Christ that we might either surrender them to him, trusting him with them, or find our deepest satisfaction in him and him alone. And all of these lies, by the way, are rooted in the big lie. Do you know what the big lie is? The big lie is the lie that Adam and Eve believed in the garden when the serpent said to Adam and Eve, did God really say? And when you call into question somebody's word, what you're calling into question is their character. So here's the real question that the serpent was planting into the heart of Adam and Eve. Can you really trust God? I mean, yeah, paradise, great. But there's one tree. There's one tree. What kind of a monster of a God won't let you eat from that one tree? Can you really trust a God like that? That lie is still perpetuated and something that we have to deal with in our own hearts. Now, let me just give you a warning. As I read through these lies, if you're like me, you might have thought of someone else first. Oh, I wish they heard this. Oh, I'm going to send them the iTunes link to this one later. You'll be missing, I think, what God wants to do in this moment, which is a work in your heart right? What are the ways in which I live saying I trust God, but my behavior says something otherwise? See, God wants the best for us. We are the beloved of God. And when we forget how loved we are by God, then everything else looks attractive. Popularity, success, fame, control. When we don't believe all that God is to us and all that God has for us and all that God offers to us, we will believe any lie that sin claims to offer us, but sin cannot provide what it offers. One of my favorite quotes by my friend, Pastor Dan Williams, is this. When it comes to sin, he uses the, he uses the metaphor of fishing. When it comes to sin, the, the, 
bait is fake, but the hook is real. The bait is fake, but the hook is real. What it offers, it cannot provide. Second thing we learn about sin is this. What sin requires, you have to provide. What sin requires, you must provide. So let's go to the end of chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. This is the fifth and final oracle of woe. And, and God, through Habakkuk here, is talking about idolatry, the absurdity of idolatry. Look at verse 18. What good is an idol carved by man or a cast image that deceives you? How foolish to trust in your own creation. See, the Christian trusts in the creator, but the idolater trusts in the creation. How foolish to trust in your own creation, a God that can't even talk. What sorrow awaits you who say to wooden idols, wake up and save us. To speechless stone images, you say, rise up and teach us. Can an idol tell you what to do? They may be overlaid with gold and silver, but they are lifeless inside. This is a sort of scalding critique of putting our faith and trust in anything other than Jesus, having idols. Here's another definition of sin that helps me sometimes to think about it, is that sin is taking a good thing and making it into a God thing. We talk about this a lot at Trinity because this is a big issue. Sin is taking a good thing. What are the good things of your life? What are the best things of your life? Family, health, your job, your opportunities, the things that you're grateful for, those are all good things, but they're not the giver, they're the gift. And sin is taking a gift and elevating it above the giver and placing our hope and trust in a good thing to the point where it becomes a God thing because sin is not just loving bad things, sin is loving good things too much, making good things into a God thing. And what sin requires, you must provide. Now, what does sin require? Well, another way of asking that question is, what does a God require? A God of any time and any place. And what all gods require throughout all cultures and all history and all time is all gods require worship. If you're going to have a God, you have to worship that God. And that worship can show up as devotion. It can show up as adoration. It can show up in a lot of different ways. But listen, the heart of worship is always the word sacrifice. Whatever, whoever we worship the most is whatever we make the most sacrifices for. So, for example, if you love career and wealth the most, then you might sacrifice your family on the altar of your job, right? If you love being in control the most, then you might sacrifice meaningful life-giving friendships for just choosing people that you can control and manipulate to accomplish your purposes, if you love respect the most, then you will eventually sacrifice integrity just to be seen a certain way by other people. This is the way it works. What sin requires, you have to provide. You're on the hook for it. Idols don't just say, go live your life. Idols say, serve me and worship me. You will live your life in a way that provides anything and everything your true God requires of you. This is what other gods do. There's actually an interesting story in 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'll be quick with this, but the people of Israel are becoming a nation, and they look at all the other nations, and they go, oh, they got kings. Kings look cool, and kings look strong, and they go to the prophet Samuel, the priest Samuel, and they say to him, uh, we want a king like all the other nations. And the way they describe the king that they want is this phrase, a king who will go out before us and fight our battles. Whatever in your life you are hoping will go before you and fight your battles for you, whatever you hope will make a way through life for you, 
That's your king. We want a king who will go forward and fight our battles for us. And Samuel, through the knowledge of God, says to them, that's not what you get when you choose a king. When you choose a king other than God, here's what's going to happen. Your sons are going to serve that king. They're going to join his military, and they're going to die for that king. You're going to lose your daughters to that king. There's going to be a king eventually that's going to have so many wives and so many concubines that are going to include your children. In other words, here's, here's what Samuel is saying. Your king will not die for you. You will die for your king. It, what sin requires, you have to provide. And interestingly enough, the first time in the history of Israel where Saul, who became the first king of Israel, should have gone out before his people and fought for them was the very famous story of David and Goliath. Goliath just wanted to fight one person. Do you know who it should have been? It should have been Saul. He was the king. He was the one that was supposed to go out before his people and fight for him, fight for them. And yet he didn't, and no one did, and then God raised up a rescuer named David. Beautiful story. So this is the way that sin works. Whatever it asks of you, you now have to give everything to it. Let me give you some examples. If you worship success and wealth and career most, you might work yourself to death. If you pursue pleasure and escape as your God, then you might drink yourself to death or addict yourself to death. If, you, if your true God is physical appearance and culture's definition of beauty, then you, maybe you starve yourself to death. And then there's other people, people on the other end of the spectrum who will eat themselves to death in pursuit of some sort of escape. If your true God is control and power and respect, you will you'll worry yourself to death. The point is this, that every other God, lowercase g, will say, you die to have me. And yet we're gonna see in just a moment, there is a God who says, I will die to have you. See, Satan came to steal and kill and destroy. Sin will require your life. And not just your future life, not just your eternal life, but your now life. There's a verse in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus says, what does it benefit a person if they gain the whole world but lose their soul? And that Greek word for soul there is not your physical life. Jesus is not saying, what good is it if you get the whole world and you die? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, what good is it if you get the whole world? And that word soul is the word psyche from which we get psychology and psychiatry. What he's saying is, what good is it if you get the whole world, but you lose yourself in the pursuit and in the process? And he's teaching us something about sin, that whatever we love, we become. Whoever we behold, we become. We turn into the very thing that we love and worship most. And that's, by the way, how we become like Jesus, we worship and adore him most, and we become like him. But if you worship pleasure the most, you become a hedonist. If you worship control the most, you become a worry wart. Whatever it is, you become what you love. Because what sin requires, you must provide. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. Two important things about sin. What it offers, it can't provide. What it requires, you must provide. And then lastly, some good news this morning. As Pastor Antonia to join me. What God requires, he provides. What God requires, he provides. Buried in these 15 verses of darkness and evil and doom and woe are two references to God. And they're like beacons of light in the middle of all this. And I want us just to look at them as we finish. And the first one is in verse 14. It's a very well-known verse. In Habakkuk 2.14, it says this, For as the waters cover the seas, or this translation says fill, but as the waters cover the sea, the earth will be covered with the awareness of the glory of the one true God. That word Lord is the covenant name for God, Yahweh. 
How much of the sea surface is covered with water? All of it. All of it. And the point here is that there is a date. Now, when he says this verse, leave it up just for a second, right before it, the juxtaposition is right before it, he's talking about how our sin brings shame and sorrow into our lives. We're chasing after glory, but we all we find is sorrow and shame. We're chasing after victory, but all we find is defeat. We're chasing after life, but all we find is death. He's saying we're glory chasers, but we wake up in the morning with shame. That's the life that we live outside of Christ. Yet, here's the hope. There's a day coming where as the waters cover the seas, the earth will be covered with the awareness of the glory of God. That someday things will not be the way they are, and someday you and I will not be the way we are. Yet we will experience fully the glory of God as we walk with him in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a beautiful promise, but it also creates a tension. And here's the tension. How? How can he promise this to people who are wicked and sinful? And that brings us to the next time where we learn about God in this passage. It's the very last verse of this chapter. It would be easy to miss, but it's very important. Verse 20 says this, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Now, right before this verse is the passage we read earlier about the idols that can't talk the ridiculousness, the uselessness, the worthlessness of worshiping things that can't save you, things that can't even speak to you. Mute idols. And then it says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. What's happening here? It's very interesting and it's very telling. Habakkuk is making a really important comparison that we can't miss. In the verses right before verse 20, he's saying this, that false gods are silent before people. They have no power to speak. But in this verse, it's the people who are silent before God. This is really important. So false gods are silent before people. They can't speak, they can't save. But the true God, the people are silent before the true God. Now, what does this mean? And I didn't really know, I had to study it this week. But silence before God simply means this. He's about to speak. (laughs) Shut up and listen. Pay attention. He's about to act. It'd be like if you were at um, some sort of a commencement address and the speaker gets up there and he or she stands and picks up the microphone and just stands there and stares. What happens? What should happen? A hush falls over the crowd. Silent. Why? Because they're about to speak. And this chapter ends with this verse and it leaves the reader with this sense and this question. What's he gonna say? And what's he gonna do? And we're silent before him. Now, what does God do? How does he act? Here's how he acts. He provides what he requires. Listen, God required perfection. You and I couldn't. He required perfection. You and I can't provide it. We all agree on that? You and I are not perfect. We cannot provide a perfect performance record, a sinless life. We can't do it. So what hope do we have? God provides what he requires. He required perfection. He provided Jesus' perfect life, his perfect righteousness. But God also required payment for our sins, and you and I can't pay that price. So he provides his son, Jesus. So here's what it means. With Jesus' life, he provided the perfection that we owe to God, that God required. And with Jesus' death, he he provided the payment that we owe to God. And so the good news of the gospel is this. What God requires, he provides. 
Some of you are exhausted trying to provide your own righteousness to God. You've, you've tried super hard at being a very good Christian. <laughs> it's just not in you. It's okay. That's the, one of the most important truths you'll ever realize. It's not in you. It isn't in you. You can't be good enough. You won't be good enough. You can't work it up. But you can receive what's been provided for you through Jesus. What God requires, he provides. Tim Keller said, you worship your way into sin. We already talked about this. False worship leads to sin, right? He says, you worship your way into sin, but you also worship your way out of sin. When we worship false gods, it results to sin. But how do we grow in Christ? How do we become more sanctified, more like Jesus? We have to learn to worship him. We have to learn to adore him. We have to learn to behold him. And as we behold him, we become like him. We're changed into his image from glory to glory. And why do we worship him? For this simple truth, that everything that God has required of us, he has provided for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together this morning.